Oliver Wendell Holmes has said that bigotry is like the pupil of the eye. The more light you pour into it, the more it contracts. Webster's defines a bigot as a person who is obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudices. Obstinate devotion to my own prejudgments, my own opinions, my own views, that's bigotry. That kind of attitude does not want more light, more truth, because the facts might persuade it to have to change its mind. So it closes like the pupil of the eye, shrinks away from more light, more truth, to obstinately hang onto its own views. Have you ever wondered why some people, with all the evidence in front of them for God's existence, for the historicity of the Christian faith, for the miraculous nature of the Bible, will still obstinately reject it? Perhaps you've wondered why the Jewish leaders of the time did not accept Christ. Why did people who saw such miracles still remain in unbelief? Why did the leaders of first century Judaism not accept the miracle-working Jesus when he was among them? John chapter 11 from verse 45 to 54 has the answer. But it does more than answer an historical question. It answers the question of why people today don't believe. It exposes things in our own hearts. This passage searches us and asks us, How do you respond when faced with accepting Christ as your Lord? What sort of things might you and I do to escape having the Lord Jesus rule us? And what we'll see is that unbelief is actually unbelievable. Unbelief is irrational. It's incorrigible, intractable, illogical. Unbelief is not driven by facts, but by fear, by something we want to protect, hold on to, hold out against. But we'll also see that God is not outfoxed, checkmated, or outflanked by this unbelief. The psalmist even says that surely the wrath of man shall praise you, meaning God uses and includes the moves of his enemies in his overall strategy. So in John 11, there are just two parts to the story. As we watch the Pharisaic response to the raising of Lazarus, we'll see the selfish, fear-driven heart of unbelief. And then we'll see something quite marvelous, God's sovereign power working through and around unbelief. And it remains for us then to see what is in our own hearts and decide which side we'll be on. So we begin with the self-interest of man that aggravates his unbelief. Perhaps the greatest miracle in the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus has just been performed in John 11 before the very eyes of a watching crowd. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The watching crowd knew he was dead, four days dead, and they saw Jesus call him to life and watched the man stumble and shuffle out of the tomb in his grave clothes. So some of the Judeans, people who lived in the area, saw the miracle and believed that Jesus was truly Messiah, Son of God. Verse 45 says they believed in him. They responded positively because signs and miracles sometimes have the effect of demonstrating the reality of God's existence, the nature of his character, the trustworthiness of his word.
We've seen this before in John, John 2 verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. John 7.31, many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? But signs and wonders do not always convert. Some people want them for mere amusement. Some signs, like the ones at Mount Sinai, overwhelm and impress people, but they don't necessarily convert them or persuade them. In other words, you can see a miracle, acknowledge it happened, but not be persuaded to accept its true meaning. That's what happens to several people who see the sign of Lazarus, and like tattletales in primary school, they run off to tell the teacher, according to verse 46. It was widely known and verified in verse 57 that the Pharisees wanted Jesus arrested, So some people at the grave of Lazarus, witnessing the raising of Lazarus, are clearly hostile to Jesus. They go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus did. Verse 47 tells us that in response to that, some of the Pharisees and chief priests convene a special meeting. It's likely a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court of Israel of the time. It could make laws, enforce them, pass sentences... It was composed primarily of Sadducees, priests who were related somehow to the high priest. There were a minority of Pharisees who also sat on this council. We think it was made up at the time of 71 men and presided over by the high priest. Some people actually think this is the actual trial of Jesus. He is here declared guilty in absentia. And then later on that Thursday night and early Friday morning, they arrest him and read out his sentence. Well, they meet and they ask, what shall we do? Which can be translated, what are we doing? What are we doing about the problem of Jesus? And the answer, of course, is nothing. He's growing in popularity. And then notice the full admission which they make in verse 47. For this man works many signs. No ifs and buts, no dismissals, no excuses. This man, Jesus, is doing the miraculous, and he's doing it on a large scale. Now, watch the selfish fear that aggravates unbelief. Verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Again, an amazing admission. The miracles of Jesus tend to create and confirm belief in him. They know that. They say if we let him keep doing these miracles, more and more people will believe in him. Why is that a bad thing? This is the result that they foresee. The Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now, how is that? Why would the Romans come and do this if there's widespread belief in Jesus? Well, we don't know exactly what they were thinking. Possibly two scenarios. One, they envisioned a mass uprising, a kind of revolt or revolution that would be led by Jesus, another Messiah claimant, and it would lead Rome to come and crush the nation for unbelief. Two, they pictured mass belief in Jesus changing the very nature of their religion, changing their favored status with Rome. 
Roman emperors had made several laws tolerating Judaism, the chief priests were collaborators and cooperators with Rome, but Judaism was tied strictly to the ethnicity of Jewishness, and a massive change to Judaism that now invited all people of all ethnicities would fundamentally change Judaism. The Messianic faith of Israel would now become an international faith, the Messianic faith of the world, even though it would still be Jewish, anchored in Israel, in the Jewish Messiah, in the Jewish scriptures. But such an international faith, in their minds, would be the end of their special status, an end to their political positions, an end to their place. And that those words, our place, may refer to the temple or the city of Jerusalem, or maybe their actual positions as Sanhedrin. Our nation refers to the supposed destruction of all Israel. However they envisioned it, they feared losing their position. The truth or falsity of Jesus didn't matter to them. The fact that Jesus was doing miracles didn't persuade them at all to consider if he might be the Messiah. In the end, it all came down to politics. Retaining power, retaining positions, self-interest drove and aggravated unbelief. It blinded and prevented them from acknowledging Jesus. A fear of losing independence may be one of the single biggest reasons for stubborn unbelief. Paul tells us that mankind knows God but does not want to acknowledge him as God or be thankful. Why? Because people sense correctly that if I believe in him and turn to him, he will come in and take my place. He'll change my status quo. If I believe, God may come in and make demands on me. And I'll no longer be independent, autonomous, sitting on the throne of my life. In other words, the issue is not about evidence and reason. It's about politics. Who gets to rule my life? Who gets to control it? have the final say. Even if God is real, and Christ is his son, and even if I've seen his miracles with my own eyes, if that means he comes in and takes my place, I won't allow it. And from Adam, through the Old and New Testament, man's problem with God has not been about God's existence, it's been about God's authority. One of the shortest summaries of this in all of Scripture comes in one of Christ's parables about the ten servants who each received money to trade while the master was away. We read in Luke 19.14, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. That's actually what's going on when people say, I don't believe in God. It's what's going on when people say, there are just too many religions for me to decide. It's what's going on when people say, there are just too many scientific reasons to accept the Bible. No, here's the question an honest person must answer. If God did exist, would you want him to rule your life? If Jesus is the Son of God, would you want him to come and take your place and change the status quo? A.W. Tozer said, Unbelief will forever be present when there is an unwillingness to face and obey the truth. We reject Jesus 
not because of a lack of evidence, but because we fear Him taking our place. Confronting the fear that drives unbelief is one of the steps towards faith. Confronting this is asking yourself whether self-rule or God-rule will be better for me. It's asking whether the Lordship of Jesus would be better than self-rule. David says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84 Well, in the middle of all this hard-hearted, self-interested rejection, where is God? What does God do with this stubborn, independent defiance? Well, we see the amazing power and providence of God next. And so the second part of this story is the sovereignty of God that accomplishes His will. The first part is the self-interest of man that aggravates his unbelief. But now the good news, the sovereignty of God that accomplishes His will. Where do we see this? From verse 49 to verse 52. Presiding over the Sanhedrin is Caiaphas, who is high priest that year. He was high priest from the year 18 to 36. When John says he was high priest that year, he doesn't mean high priest were appointed annually. He means Caiaphas was high priest in that fateful year, the year of Christ's crucifixion. He's mentioned in Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. He's attested in the writings of Flavius nine times in the New Testament. And Caiaphas says to this group that say we're doing nothing, he says with evident contempt for them, you know nothing. Josephus tells us the Sadducees were rude even to each other. And what he means is you're wholly mistaken, nor have you calculated the practical mathematics of the situation. He says, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, he's saying, you have not calculated that it's more profitable, more advantageous for everyone if one man should be executed, whether justly or unjustly, and that the whole nation survive rather than letting that one man live and seeing the whole nation perish under Rome. And here we have the official moment when that Judaism of the first century broke away from the faith of the patriarchs. Here is where rabbinic and priestly Judaism broke away from the messianic scriptures, the plan of God to have his kingdom on earth and instead, for political reasons, headed in its own direction. Because here, the head of Jewish religion that year decides that Yeshua must be taken out. Messiah or not, miracle worker or not, he must be removed. Now, Caiaphas means this cynically. One man must be executed by them to protect the nation. He must be sacrificed because he is a threat. His life will bring about the destruction of the whole nation. His death will bring about its survival. But then in verse 51, the Apostle John tells us that Caiaphas' words went far beyond what he meant. John writes, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation. God would often speak through the high priest. In the Old Testament, they carried the Urim and Thummim stones and announced the will of God in matters of guidance. 
And here John says that God was speaking through this evil high priest who had murderous intentions to speak the gospel itself. Here is the glorious sovereignty of God moving silently and powerfully even among those in rejection. Because within Caiaphas' words are another identical parallel meaning. Yes, one man must die to protect the nation. But not from Rome. One man must die to protect the nation from eternal judgment. He must die not because he's a threat to the nation or guilty. He must die because he's the only one who can save them by his death. Either he dies or they all die. Jesus must die for the nation so the nation wouldn't perish. Isaiah 53.8 For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And the words that one man die for the people is a simple prophecy of the meaning of the cross. And note it's a substitutionary death, one man on behalf of others. John adds his commentary, this death would not only be for the Jewish nation, but for the children of God who were scattered abroad. It reminds us of when Jesus said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The really striking thing to all of us is, is that this high priest, in the very moment when he is announcing that Jesus should be assassinated, was simultaneously announcing the gospel. What does this tell us? God is sovereign and in control, even when people rage against him. When Balaam was hired to curse Israel, the only words that could come out of his mouth were blessings. When Pilate wrote an insulting title above the cross, he ended up writing exactly the truth. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When the chief priests hurled insults at him, they spoke gospel truth because they said, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Which was exactly right. He was giving up himself to save others. You see, God is sovereignly in control in and through the rejection of man. Joseph could say to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. Proverbs 16 verse 4 says, The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. You see, in God's universe, you don't get to decide if God will have his way. You only get to decide which role you will play. But whether you get into the role of adversary of God or friend of God, God's sovereign will will still take place through you. You will either be the callous brothers that sell Joseph into Egypt, resulting in him becoming ruler, protecting Israel, and setting the stage for Exodus, or you'll be obedient Joseph. You can be the mocking voices whose insults are truths that indict you, or you can be those weeping at the cross. You can be the lawless hands that murder Jesus, putting him on the cross that saves sinners. You can be a, a snapping dog barking at your creator. God will simply use that. He will tie you to a stick in his garden, let you run up and down furiously and mow his grass with all your ranting and raving. You can be a loyal friend enjoying your creator or his enemy. But unbelief won't thwart or harm God. It will just position you with respect to God. 
It will determine what role you play in the grand story God is writing. You can be a villain or a hero, but you can't change the author or the director of the story. The great glory of God is that He uses His friends and His enemies. He uses those who use their freedom to turn to God, and He uses those who use their freedom to turn away from God. So what then did they do? How did these two factors work together? Well, from here the Sanhedrin make active plans to catch and kill Jesus Christ. Ironically, a resurrected Lazarus is going to lead to a crucified Christ. Jesus must have had sympathizers in the Sanhedrin for him to have found out about this meeting, indeed for us to have a record of it. Likely it was Nicodemus. And from there, Jesus makes sure he's not walking in plain sight. He takes refuge in a nearby city of Ephraim. At the exact moment, though, at the right time, God is going to use the stubborn unbelief of the Sanhedrin to put Jesus on the cross. And Peter will later look at the people in Jerusalem and say, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see, in the end, God is sovereign over all human action. And so this reminds us of Psalm 2, which says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. The rulers of this world hate God and his Messiah because they fear his authority will take their place. So they plot and scheme to prevent him from doing so. And there's the first part of our story, the self-interest of man that aggravates unbelief. But here comes the sovereignty of God that accomplishes his will. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God will triumph. He promises to his son, the Messiah, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So what does the psalmist advise? He says, be wise, O kings, be instructed, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. In other words, believe in him. Give him his place as supreme. Do not fear that when Christ takes his place as Lord of your life, that it will be an evil thing. In fact, it will only remove what should never have been there. The evil, a corrupt nature, a usurper trying to rule what belongs to God. Tozer said it well when he said, Unbelief will destroy the best of us, and faith will save the worst of us.